Hey, let's open our Bibles this morning to John's Gospel. We're going to be looking at chapter 19 this morning. And let's go ahead and read from there. We're just going to look at the first 16 verses today. It's quite a lengthy chapter, and there's a lot here. And so I thought we would just take a couple of Sundays in chapter 19. So let's look at it. Um, remember, Jesus has already gone through his, uh, all these trials. He's gone through six different trials. The first one, if you remember, we looked at last week in chapter 18, and he was before Annas, who was the high priest. Uh, and Caiaphas, believe it or not, was also the high priest in Jerusalem. He was appointed really by a, a Roman governor, a Roman prefect, but the state of Israel really looked at Annas, the older of the two of them, as being really their high priest. But there were two high priests. So the first time Jesus is, is on trial, he goes before Annas first. And then Annas sends him to Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. And then... Caiaphas establishes or gets together a board of the Sanhedrin and they have a third trial and those are what we call the religious trials of Jesus and then he went from there Caiaphas sent Jesus finally to Pontius Pilate the prefect of Judea and he goes before Pilate the first time Pilate is uh, stalling and trying to figure out what to do with this hot potato that he's got on his hands Ultimately, he sends him to Herod, who was in town during this time. And Herod really just wanted to see a miracle. He was just uh, looking for some entertainment from Jesus. And not knowing what to do, and having no real solid charges against Jesus, Herod Antipas sends Jesus back again the second time to Pilate. And so that's where we stand right now as we read 19, chapter 19, is the second time that Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. And notice what it says. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. And therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium, and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And then from, uh, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. 
And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover at about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Let me read that again. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And then he delivered him to them to be crucified. And then they took Jesus and they led him away. They led him away. Interesting, interesting events happening in the life of Jesus, wouldn't you say? The very king of the universe now standing and, and, and under and trial against his, everything that he stands for, everything that he came for. And if you'll notice, this morning I labeled the, the message, the power of the mob. The power of the mob. And I did that because when we think of a mob, oftentimes we think of, at least I did, I think of the mafia. I think of a group of men whose um, uh, organization is built upon criminal activity built upon lies and built upon certainly uh, sinful behaviors. And the mob that was here before Pilate was very similar in a lot of ways. They were doing illegal things. We've, we looked at that last week. They were continuing to do illegal things, certainly built upon lies and certainly built upon sinful behavior. But the mob at Jesus' trial... Um, the, the, the people were made up, this mob was made up of ordinary citizens along with the Jewish religious leaders, chief priests, officers who were stirring up the crowd against Jesus. You'd think that it would be the religious leaders that would have been the ones pointing them, everyone, to Jesus, but rather they're trying to stir up the crowd to be against Jesus. Talk about the mob. And the mob mentality, you've seen it, <laughs> Maybe you even experienced it. It's usually a very dangerous thing. The mob is often not governed by the truth, and rather they are uh, guided by misinformation and misguided anger. Very little truth usually in a mob, and especially following the mob mentality. I remember Pastor Jeff many years ago when he was at Berkeley in California, where he went to music school, back in the late 60s, early 70s, I think that was when he went, um, he mentioned about a, a, a crowd that had gathered, and he kind of got caught up into the crowd. And I think it was him that he got, he was in the crowd, there, and, and, and he asked the people, what are you guys all angry about? And they really didn't know. They really didn't have uh, really good solid facts about what they were doing. They were just a generation that were angry and just wanting to resist. It was just the age of Aquarius, I guess. And so there was this mob mentality, not really knowing what they're for, but just angry and not really sure of their own convictions. But very often people get part of that and they get swept up in it and they don't know. But the mob at Jesus' trial was not interested in truth. They had already made up their minds concerning Christ. They would rather have a robber and a murderer exonerated and his crimes rather than Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh. And with this mob, this religious leaders, these religious leaders who had so much power over the people, 
Their power, their influence, they led that mob against Jesus. And they even put fear in the heart of Pilate, who uh, at that time illegally gave a guiltless man over to the mob to be crucified. A guiltless man. Why would you give a man who has not been found guilty over to a mob that wants to kill him? When you are the one who is in power... That's like the tail wagging the dog, isn't it? But the religious leaders were manipulating not only the crowd, but they were also manipulating this Pontius Pilate. And you may think to yourself, but wait, I thought that this was the kind of thing that only happens in our day. No, it happened, and it happens from, the very, from time immemorial. These things have been going on. It's been going on for millennia. Solomon said it best when he said this, He said, that which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it has been said? See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come, but those who will come after them, or by those, excuse me, who come after them. Isn't that interesting? We don't really learn. We're not really listening to the past, and even the, even the stuff that's yet future to us, there's coming a time when people will look back on the future that is ahead of us, they'll look back on that and, and scratch their head, and they'll forget all about it. I think it was uh, George uh, Santayana, He was a Spanish poet, philosopher, and a novelist. He was purported to say, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I believe that's true. And we see that even today. In our country, we need to remember what this country was founded on because, folks, it's being eroded. And two years ago, when COVID began, and I'm not going to spend any time on this, And you know it because we've all lived through it. Never forget what happened because we are full steam ahead to eroding this country and the leaders of this country are doing it. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. This whole idea of the mob, we saw in Ephesus, Paul during his third missionary journey And let me just read to you, beginning at verse 23, it says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. The way is Christianity, the the true walk with God, the true worshiping the true Messiah. That's what they called the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. And so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana. Were they really concerned about Diana? And the goddess Diana, do you notice what order they put those things in? It was first their, their, their craft, their trade. Do you know that our trade's in trouble? Oh, and by the way, oh, our great god Diana is being blasphemed. What is more important? Hmm, they just kind of proved it to themselves, didn't they? But anyway, verse 27, so not only is this trade of ours, but also the goddess of Diana, that she may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. 
Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath, and they cried out, saying, Great, Diana, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And in verse 29, notice, case in point. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. And then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. But then notice 32, and we'll end here, or actually almost we'll end here. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is typical of the mob mentality. This was the very thing that we see before Pilate now, and he's going to try to appease this mob rather than rebuke them. But notice what this man of Ephesus does, this city clerk. He basically quiets them down, and I'm just going to paraphrase. Um, he, he quiets them down, gets a hold of this crowd, which was the entire town. We're talking hundreds and maybe even thousands of people. And then in verse 40, know what he says. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the, sem- the assembly. This city clerk in Ephesus, in front of hundreds, perhaps thousands of people, had more chutzpah, more leadership than Pilate in front of certainly a smaller number of people. And so we looked at these trials of Jesus. We looked at, and I already mentioned these um, these religious trials that Jesus had and then also his civil trials. And we're looking at that very last one now before Pilate. And if you could, let's go back to verse 39 of chapter 18. And we're going to pick up there because that this is really uh, during that time when Jesus is before Pilate. And I want to bring up this idea of Barabbas because it just shows the insanity of the mob. They would rather have a convicted felon, they would rather have a robber, a murderer, an insurrectionist delivered to them and exonerated rather than giving Jesus back to them or letting him go free. So verse 39 of chapter 18, notice what it says. Pilate speaking to the the mob, he says, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they all cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Other gospel accounts tell us that he was also a murderer and certainly an insurrectionist. So they chose, and again, it makes no sense, does it? There were no charges formally brought up to Jesus, but this guy who really was caught and and certainly was a murderer, certainly was a robber, him they let go. This insanity that you see here in this gospel account is no different than the insanity that we're seeing in our country today. Solomon said it right. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. And these men were dominated by the flesh. They were dominated by the flesh. Let's look at uh, verse 1 now. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, I want to give a warning for young eyes and for tender consciences for the next few slides because I'm going to be showing you 
a few diagrams, uh, which may not be shocking to you, but I just want to be sensitive to those, if there's anybody with family with kids. Because I'm going to show you a few things about the scourging that Jesus went through. And I'm going to read to you a handful of, or a few excerpts that may alarm you. So let's look at this. So Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And this picture that you see on the screen is basically a picture of a man who is standing uh, at a pole, and they, they've got him tied with his arms around the pole. And um, this actually came from a journal of the American Medical Association back in 1986, an article called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ by William Edwards. It's a really fantastic article. In fact, all the graphics that I'm going to show you are from that article, which I do have if you ever want it. But it's really fantastic to get a medical understanding of what happened to Jesus but we're talking about him being scourged at this time. And this word scourge is uh, the Greek word mastigou, which literally means to flog. And they used a flagellum or a cat of nine tails. And you'll see that on the left side of the screen, basically uh, a, leather, a leather handle. And then there were strips of leather that had different pieces of small bone, pieces of leather, uh, uh, pieces of, of uh, metal pieces. And these things were all with the intention of not only bruising the body, but also opening the body up as they would use this flagellum on the body. And Jesus was be beaten by either one or even two lictors. Lictors are the people who are the ones doing the lashings. And they would lash in a certain direction, right down the side. And, and a lot of this stuff would, um, many times people wouldn't even survive the scourging. Depending on the Roman soldiers and the executioners, they would do this often to get a confession. And if you didn't confess to your crime, because after being beat like that, anybody who's really guilty is going to say, you know what, I did do it. <laughs> and maybe your penalty would be less. I don't know. But they would do that to get the truth. And all the time that that's happening to Jesus, he is silent. He was silent. Kenneth Wiest, who is a, a Greek scholar, he did a word study on this uh, verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And here's the verse. He says, who, speaking of Jesus, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. And this gentleman, Kenneth Weiss, believes, and, and I believe this too, that Jesus didn't go through just the normal flogging. They really hated him because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, the, the actual Messiah. And these hardened criminal or these hardened uh, soldiers, excuse me, were Romans. They were diehard Romans, and they were going to let him have it. And Jesus wasn't this puny man. He was a man's man. He was a carpenter. So he, had, he was in shape. He wasn't, you know, um, you know emasculated or anything like that. He, he, was a, he was a man's man, a very strong man. And so Jesus took this. He took this. In fact, Mr. Weiss had this to say concerning uh, this lashing, that Christian martyrs in Smyrna about A.D. 155, were so torn by the scourges that their veins were laid bare and the inner muscles and sinews and even the bowels were exposed. That's how bad these things could be. And they would use this 
uh, before they would lead them to the cross. In this journal of American Medical Association, it said this, Flogging was illegal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators or soldiers, except in cases of uh, desertion, were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip, a flagellum, with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at intervals. Occasionally, stabs were also used. And for the scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back and the buttocks and the legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who alternated positions. And the severity of the scourging depended on the disposition position of the lictors and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death and after the scourging the soldiers often taunted their victim and it goes on and it says as the roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and the sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues and then as the flogging continued the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. And pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. And the extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. The severe scourging with its intense pain and appreciable blood loss most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. Moreover, hematidrosis had rendered his skin particularly tender. And the physical, the mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical amazing to consider what he went through on the cross this would certainly explain why Simon a Cyrenian as we'll read later he was from the coastal city in North Africa he carried the cross of Jesus there came a point and we'll see this later that Jesus was so weakened by this this uh, this flagellum and this scourging and, and everything that he went through, the punches and the, the crown of thorns and the reed hitting him on the head where the crown of thorns is, and just the torture and, and mental and physical anguish that Jesus went through, that when he was supposed to carry that patibulum, that beam that goes across, he was supposed to carry that from that place for about a mile to get to Golgotha. But he had become so weakened because of what he had endured, they grabbed a man named Simon, a Cyrenian, and he had to continue... At some point along the, along the route, he had to continue carrying it for Jesus because he was so weakened to do it. And this patibulum, this, this beam that he would carry, would be anywhere between 75 to 125 pounds. And even though Simon carried the cross for Jesus, let me suggest to you that the cross that Jesus bore was something that was not physical. Yes, the cross that Jesus bore. And I don't want to minimize the, the physical beatings and the suffering that he went through. I don't want to minimize that because that was horrible. But we know that that stripe that God had placed upon his son was the thing that earned, or, or the, the thing that bought our uh, appeased God and brought salvation to us by putting our faith in him. 
that one single blow, that word stripes in 1 Peter chapter 2.24, that word stripes is a singular noun. It's a singular noun, even though it looks like it's plural. In the original, it's singular. Well, well, Jesus endured many stripes, but what was the one stripe that really paid the price of our salvation? It was when God the Father looked down upon his Son and he put the sin of the world on him. The thing that nobody could see, the thing that all they could see was this bloody, broken figure on the cross, but it was what they couldn't see that was the thing that did it. Because Jesus bore the penalty and God put the sin of all of us, of all of mankind, forevermore on Jesus. And once and for all, he judged it in his son. That's why Jesus would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd never known that, ever. God, the Father, forsook his son on the cross. When he had never experienced that before. Think about that. Never in his existence had Jesus ever experienced a separation of fellowship with the Son or with the Father. He never experienced it. It was totally foreign to him. And yet now, as he bore the punishment for us, God the Father looked away because God cannot look upon sin. And he placed all of the sin of all of mankind in one fell swoop on his son, and it was coming out like a lightning bolt that nobody could see. That, I believe, is the blow. That, I believe, is the stripe. When Isaiah even said, and by his stripes we are healed, again, the word in the Hebrew is singular. By his blow, we were healed. We were healed and we were set free to receive Salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. It was that one blow from the Father, not the multiple blows from the lictors as they, as they just went to town on Jesus. No, I mean, not to minimize it again. I mean, it was horrible. Many people have been crucified in history. Thousands of people have been crucified in history, but there's one single blow that one man received on Mount Moriah, and that was Jesus Christ receiving the blow from his Father, Yes, premeditated murder by the Father. Because this was planned in advance. This wasn't something that was happenstance. It was planned in advance. And so, verse 2, back in our chapter here. And the soldiers, notice, they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They even put on him a purple robe. Now this crown of thorns could also be symbolic of the curse. We know that in Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of man, um, that, that to Adam God said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, notice, cursed is the ground for your sake, and in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So as they put that crown of thorns on Jesus, basically it was representative of the fall of man, of, the, of, the, of the, 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 the corruption of man, of fallen man, the curse of man. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says this, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Jesus was accursed of God for a time. He bore the punishment. And when you and I think of a tree, we often think of a, of a literal tree, but uh, a, a wood beam, and, and, and they call that thing the stipes. It's basically a pole that is sent down into the ground, into a hole, and that is called the stipes. And then they would take that, uh, um, that uh, Polybium, uh, polybium, I forget, <laughs> I can't remember what it was. They, they took the, that, that piece that was on him and they would place that on the stipes and he would hang there and they would put a, a little holder for where he could rest his feet at times. If they were nice to you, they would put that there. It would just prolong your death, actually, by putting it there. So the soldiers twisted and they put a crown of thorns, they put a purple robe on him, and in their continual mocking jest, they put a robe of purple, and purple, as you know, uh, as a symbol of royalty, it was a precious commodity in those days, which only those who were kings or magistrates or those of great importance would have uh, their clothes dyed this purple. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. In Mark's gospel of the same account, it says that they not only struck him on the head uh, with, with their hands, but they also struck him on the head with a reed, which is basically a, a wooden stick. And they, he had the crown of thorns on his head. Think of that. The crown of thorns are already digging into his scalp, and then they take a reed, and then they're whacking him over the head with it. Think of what that's doing. It's driving those spikes even further in. Now, my intention this morning is not to gross anybody out. But these details of what Jesus went through are, at some point, we should understand what he went through. Because it was torture. And notice, they spit on him and they mocked him. They bowed the knee before him and they worshipped him. And Pilate, verse 4, went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I, have, I find no fault in him. Are you kidding me? The truth of the matter is, if, if he found no fault in Jesus, then legally he should have let him go, but he didn't. And as we looked at last week, there were many Ill, Ill, illegalities in the apprehension and the trial of Jesus. But notice, at this time, Jesus had already been scourged with the flagellum. He'd already been punched. He'd already had the crown of thorns beat into his head with a reed. And Pilate brings him out now, a bloody mess, an uncondemned man whom they flog mercilessly and has the gall to say, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Really? Is that what you do in Rome? Even the Romans had laws, and they were breaking all kinds of laws here. Even the Jews had laws. Even when they did exact capital punishment, they had laws about what to do. Then Jesus came out, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man... You know, and after all they did to Jesus, he was still standing and silent before his accusers, not confessing any guilt because he was guiltless. He was guiltless. And what does it tell us in Isaiah 53? 
uh, verses 4 through 7 and 10 through 12. It says, surely he, and, and, and Isaiah writing this 700 years before Christ would even be born in the flesh. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Who is this man that Isaiah is referring to? It's none other than Jesus Christ. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, that's singular by the way and by his stripes we have been healed and all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth yet uh, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth And in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. It pleased God the Father to crush him, not because he was some sadistic father, but it it satisfied him. That's what it means. He wasn't pleased to do it. He didn't want to do it. It broke his heart to do it, but he knew that it was the only way to redeem people to himself because God's justice says the man who sins shall surely die. And every one of us, the Bible says, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there is only one person, unless we all of humanity goes to hell in a handbasket, there's only one who can save us from that. And Jesus is the only one who is sinless, the only one who could take that punishment for us. And he did it willingly. He did it knowingly. What he, he knew what he was up for. He knew what was going to happen. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now he is seated at the right hand of God forevermore. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? Hallelujah. But notice what Isaiah goes on to say. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, and he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Remember, Jesus had two malefactors on the on either side of him and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors verse 6 back in our text therefore when the chief priests and officers saw him they cried out saying crucify him crucify him and Pilate said to them you take him and crucify him for I find no fault in him I find no fault in him crucifixion wasn't even invented by the Romans we believe it was invented by the Persians But yet the Romans perfected it, and the Jews had no authority to exact capital punishment, but the Romans did, because the Romans took that right away from the Jews. Verse 7, it says, the Jews answered, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Again, another untruth. They didn't want to believe it, yet the scriptures had foretold that the Messiah would come, and behold, he does come, and they don't believe in him. And he fit all of the descriptors all throughout the Old Old Testament prophecies. If they were just to stop for a minute and go through the prophecies and find out where he was born, where all all these different details that we know, 
If they would have looked at that and they would have checked off those boxes, they're like, oh my goodness, it really is him. And he confirms it by the miracles. I mean, nobody can raise the dead. Nobody can open the eyes of a man who was born blind. No one can make a man who was infirm for 38 years to rise up again. Only God can do that. And yet he fits the bill of all the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, for fulfilling those things. I think we better wake up. That's what they should have done. (laughs) And yes, he is. In Philippians... This was true concerning Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the the death of the cross. And the Jews answered him, um, You know, in the law, excuse me, that the Jews are referring to is Leviticus. It says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him. And the stranger, as well as him who is born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. This was their, this is what they thought Jesus was guilty of. But he wasn't guilty of this because he is and was and is the Son of God. Today, he's still the Son of God. There's a man in heaven who rose, and he's coming back for you and I, the church. That's what the Bible says. He says, I, where I'm going, I'm going to come back for you. I promise you, I'm coming back for you. And I'm going to change your bodies in the twinkling of an eye, and you're going to be raised incorruptible. But the dead in Christ will rise first. And then you, which are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them. Hallelujah. Looking forward to that day. Amen? Yes. And they tried to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And you can look at this scripture. We're not going to take any time to look at this because time is fleeting. But notice in verse 8, Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, notice he was afraid. Who was actually in control here? Pilate is now afraid. Instead of the mob being afraid of his authority, now he's afraid because they were very cunning, weren't they? They were going to use everything against Pilate and corner him to the point where he just couldn't bear the pressure of what he was going under. And we're going to see this again in verse 13. But Pilate's conscience was starting to really bother him. And he, would rather, he wouldn't admit it, but he was being manipulated by the Jewish leaders. And they continued to pile on the pressure until Pilate finally caved. And boy, did he. And there is nothing new under the sun. And he went again into the praetorium, verse 9, and said to Jesus, where are you from? Because now Pilate is thinking, if if they're claiming that you're the son of God and that's part of the problem here, then where are you from? And notice, Jesus didn't answer him. He gave him no answer. Notice Pilate's fear and conviction about hearing that Jesus might be the Messiah. And he proves it by the question that he asks in the next verse. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking... Uh, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Yes, even the power that Pilate have, had, yes, even the power that we see that our president in this country has, the power that Vladimir Putin has in Russia, those things have been given to them by loan. It's been lent to them. Romans 13 tells us very clearly, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed or governed by God, ordained by God. 
So take courage in that. When we feel like we didn't get what we paid for or what we voted for, think about that. God is in control, Christian. He's in control. And Jesus answered, you could have no power. But then notice what he says in the the last part of the verse. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. This is more than likely referring to Caiaphas, the high priest, because he, he literally delivered Jesus to Pilate the first time, and we know that that was what had happened. So he has the greater sin, but notice Jesus' conviction and his holiness struck fear in the heart of Pilate, and that's why he would say in verse 12, and then on, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. (laughs) Oh, now you've really hit the vein, didn't you? Boy, they were manipulating him, and boy, they had him in, in, in their grasp. He thought he was in power, and they've got him like this. And they're like, oh, if you, make, if you don't do something, then you make Caesar, you know, you're blaspheming against Caesar if you allow this king to, go, to continue to go on. You've got to do something with him, because if you don't, and Pil- this is what Pilate's thinking. Remember that guy, that, that, that clerk in Ephesus, who says we could be called into we could be called um, about this. We could, we're, we're responsible for what's happening here. If this gets back to, to Rome, we're going to be in a lot of trouble because of this unlawful uproar. That's what Pilate's thinking. Now he's got to do something. He's forced to do it. He still had a decision. Notice in verse 13, underline this. Actually, verse 8 and verse 13, just circle those verses because this is where they're manipulating, the mob is manipulating Pilate. The tail is wagging the dog. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat, or literally the bema seat, that's what judgment seat is, in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, the Gabbatha. So Pilate, again, is being cornered. He's getting very frustrated. He's caught in their net. He feels compelled to do something now because of the reference to another king other than Caesar, which would be grounds for death for those who believe in that. And so let's take a quick look at Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel because we're going to see these parallel accounts that Pilate was being manipulated again by the mob, and we'll see that. And we're just going to do this really quickly uh, because uh, for the sake of time. But in Matthew chapter 27, uh, it's the parallel account of what we're reading now. But one thing I want to bring out to you is in verse 19 and 20 of Matthew 27. It says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, notice his wife now sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So now Pilate is feeling like the Jews have got him in their hand and he's got to do something. He's got to crucify. He's got to give in to their demands. And now his wife, think of the power of a wife. Forget the power of the mob. The power of the wife. She comes to him and says, I've suffered many things in a dream of this man. Have nothing to do with this just man. Well, thanks a lot. 
Talk about being between a rock and a hard place. Oh, yes, Pilate was in the crucible. And you know what? God allowed it. This man was a man pleaser. He was in politics, and he just wanted to please people. It didn't matter if there was a moral problem at all. He was just a man pleaser. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. What do you want? You want this? Oh, I'll give that to you. Even though it's wrong, I know. But you know what? You want it so bad. I'm just going to give it to you. No, a real leader should say, no, this is what the Bible says. This is what God has said, and I'm not going to give that to you because it's going to destroy you. What's the matter with you? Go back home. That's what a real leader will do. Not give you what you want, but give you what you need. And what we need is the word of God. And what we need is to follow the Lord and follow his word. Amen? But notice in verse 20, it says, The chief priests and elders, notice, they persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They stirred the whole thing up. And then in verse 24 of of that chapter, it says, Then Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all. Yes, this Roman prefect, the governor of Judea, when he saw that he could not prevail, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water, he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Really? Notice how Pilate lost control, and rather than quelling the uprising like that clerk in Ephesus, he appeases the mob, he does the illegal thing, and the character of a person, isn't it true, is really shown when they are put under great duress, when they are held under the fire. It's times like that that we really find out who we really are, but not while everything is going well. It's usually when we're held to the fire, when we're under great duress, that's when we find out really what we're made of. I don't know myself. Does anybody know themselves here this morning? To know what you would do in a certain situation? I certainly don't because I've proven it over and over again that I I talk a big game and then I get right in the middle of the circumstance and I realize that I wasn't all that I thought I was. There's a discrepancy about what I think of myself and what God knows to be true of me. And maybe you feel the same way. It's a healthy thing to examine your heart like that. And in doing so, we refrain from making wild boasts about what I can and cannot do. Because honestly, I have no idea. Maybe someday, I'm hoping one day, I'll shock myself. And when, the, when it really comes down to it, that I'll do the hard thing, the difficult thing. The thing that would require something that is extra supernatural that I don't have within my own self. And all the people answered and they said, this, his blood be upon us and on our children. Yeah, they didn't mean it like God meant it. Certainly the blood of Christ would be over them and they would be guilty of his blood. But God was thinking, if you would just receive the blood of Christ over you, you'd be free of your sin and have entrance to heaven. In Mark chapter 15, it says something interesting too. In verse 15, it says, So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd... Notice, to appease the mob, in order to gratify them, what does he do? He released Barabbas to them, a convicted true killer and robber and insurrectionist. They delivered, he delivered Barabbas to them and he delivered Jesus and after he had scourged him to be crucified. Again, the power of the mob. This man, Pilate. History says that After all of this had happened, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, many years go by and Pilate actually has to go back to Rome. And I think it was Caligula he had to stand in front of. And because of all this stuff that was going on with Pilate, 
He was an unstable man. Finally, Caligula told him to go kill himself, and he did. I believe it was Caligula. He says, go and take care of yourself. And I believe it was Pilate who poisoned himself, and he died. I think that's how he, uh, how he passed away. But he was a consummate politician. He compromised truth and justice to satisfy the angry mob. You know, in the last couple of years, there have been a number of judges and leaders, civil and even religious in our country, who have given in to the court of public opinion rather than doing what is right. But let us be resolved to do the right thing. Let us not be one of those people that gets caught up in the court of public opinion especially wrongful public opinion, and let's uphold and encourage those who are doing the right thing regardless of what the public opinion is because the public opinion is usually wrong. The public opinion is usually based on the flesh. Very seldom is it doing the right thing. And so we have to, we have to know. And it takes conviction, doesn't it? It takes spine And that can only be given to us by the Spirit of God. That's what we need today, folks. We need the Spirit of God. We need discipline. We need discernment. We need wisdom. We need fortitude. And last but not least, we need great love, agape love. We need that today. And let's not be gullible, believing everything that the media is telling us. But be a Berean, like uh, Acts 17.11. They, they search the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You know, be a Berean, in the word, of course, first. But search out everything, even stuff that you see in the media and on YouTube especially. Because there's so much falsehood in the media today. And be careful about your propagation of that stuff. Before you send an email, before you send a tweet or a retruth. Be careful about what you send because chances are, and I've got caught in this a number of times and I'm fed up with it. Be careful. Be careful what you listen to, especially on YouTube, especially on Twitter, wherever you're getting your news, even Fox News, yes, and somebody will call the radio station later and say, I'm, you know, I'm not going to listen to you guys anymore because he said something about Fox News. Fox News is a mess just like the rest of them. True journalism is dead. (laughs) There are only a few, maybe, who actually hold to it. And they're quickly ran out of town by these big, you know, mainstream media companies. They don't want the truth. They want to spin it the way they want. But nothing nothing is new under the sun, isn't it? And we see that even in this... And what Jesus went through. There's really nothing new that happened there. You could basically take those situations, the people, the events, all those things, and you could overlay them on 2022, and you would find that they're probably just like the same, it's like the same stuff. It's the same thing that's happening. There's nothing new under the sun. What has been will be, and the things that, and people will look back on, the, on, on even today, and they'll forget about the, the events of today. They'll forget about what happened two years ago. They'll forget about what's going on. We have this amnesia, and yet we need to be critical thinkers. That's something they're not teaching in schools today, is critical thinking. We need to be thinkers again. Instead, people are... I've got to be careful, I'm going off on a limb here. 
but people are just listening to sound bites and they're just kind of going along with the, the mob. Be different from the mob. Search things out. Know the truth. Know the truth. Remember, the first casualty in any war is truth. And we're going through that, aren't we? But in verse 14, back in our text, notice. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And here Pilate is just a consummate. He's angry because he knows he's being played. He knows he's being manipulated. And so he's kind of pushing it back into their court again. And he's just like, he's like stirring up the pot and he's loving it. And he's telling them, Shall I crucify your king? And they're like, We told you he's not our king. We want Caesar. Are you kidding me? The Jews, the the religious leaders, they want Caesar. We have no king but Caesar, they said. They're going to say it. We've got no king but Caesar. Madness, that's what that is. It's madness. Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Opportunists. They betrayed the the chief priests, they betrayed their own country and themselves by now aligning themselves with Caesar because it was expedient for them so that they could get what they wanted because what they wanted was to be done with Jesus and they would sell their soul to the devil to get it. What hypocrisy. Actually, my daughter, when she was little, we were teaching her this word, hypocrisy, and she would say, hypocrisy. I like that. But it was hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And now notice verse 16. Then he delivered him to be to them to be crucified, an uncondemned, uncharged man that they've already nearly killed by flogging him with the flagellum. They've already slapped him, they've already punched him. They've already hit him with the reed with the crown of thorns on his head, causing profuse bleeding all over his body. They deliver him now with a purple robe. They deliver him to be crucified, uncondemned. So many things wrong with this. And yet, was it a surprise to God? Was Jesus like, you know, I demand to have a fair trial. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for heaven's sake, we're going to do it by truth. And we're gonna, I'm going to show myself, and if you, want me to, if you want me to bring down fire right now to prove that I'm the Son of God, I'm going to do it. You know, but did he do that? No, he didn't. He willingly went to the cross. He says, I willingly lay down my life for the sheep, because he is the great shepherd. And that's what a great shepherd does. A great shepherd, a good shepherd of any flock of sheep, is going to take care of those sheep. And aren't you the best taking care of sheep by Jesus? Doesn't he take care of you? Even on our worst days, even on the days where we're, you know, our basement's flooded with water because we went on a, a trip and came back and two weeks later we find water coming out of, our, out of the sides of our house because our hot water heater... Why, what's the deal with hot water heaters? I, I just, we had it happen too, by the way. <laughs> but it didn't get very far before we found out. Thank you, Jesus. But he took him away to be crucified, and they took Jesus and they led him away. We're going to pick up in verse 17 next week, but I just want to share with you something before we go on to verse 17. There's something that happened, and it's a small little detail, and it's one that I've already alluded to. 
But right here between verses 16 and verse 17, you might want to write down uh, Mark chapter 15, verses uh, Verse 21, you'll see that whole phrase, that whole uh, section of Scripture there. But this is what happened after Jesus had been let go, and they were going to let him go to be crucified. Remember, he had already been flogged, he'd been beaten, he's, he's gone through everything, and he's physically exhausted, he hasn't had anything to eat, no water, he's tired, he's been up all night, right? He's been up all night, think about that, up all night, no food, no water, and then beaten, losing blood so much so, and then he's got to carry this patibulum, which he got somewhat of the way, and then somebody else, and, and, and then this is what happens. And this is what occurred in between verse 16 and verse 17, is this man by the name of Simon, a Cyrenian from northern Africa. It says in Mark 15, verse 21, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. To bear his cross. He had been beaten so badly. And again, you know, as much as the physical sufferings of Christ are, are genuine, they're real, they're history. I just want to encourage you with the cross that he bore again. Jesus took that cross. He, he bore the shame for you and me. He took upon himself. He became, he took our sin of everyone who would ever be born and everyone who has ever been born, he would take the sin and God would judge it. And by his stripes, or his stripe really is literally what it means, by that one blow, that is what gave us the right to be called the sons of God. The sons and the daughters of God. Because Jesus took that punishment for us. I don't know about you, but I never want to lose the gravity of what he did for me. We're not taking communion today, but you know, that's when we take communion, that's, that's really what we're thinking. The body and the blood of Christ that was his body and his blood that was shed for us. You know, I think as Christians, and, and I'm guilty of this, I can become so familiar, especially as a pastor, I can become so familiar with the passages and I have read them several times, several times, that I get to the point where I start, it starts to lose the momentum, the, the, the hugeness of what he did for me. And you're probably no different than I am. You know, you, you get to the point where, yeah, I've, I've heard that before, you know, and, and I get it. We've heard the information. But I want to encourage you today to take a fresh look at what Christ has done for you, how he bore the shame. And more than all the physical stuff, he did what nobody could see on the cross. Nobody could see it. The devil was very much aware of what was happening. And I am sure that while he was hanging on the cross, it's not written in the Bible, so I'm on thin ice here, but I believe that the devil was probably right up in his face as Jesus was hanging on the cross and just looking at him and staring at him and saying, I've got you. I've been waiting for this day since Genesis 3. And now you're mine. And Jesus says, eh, give it a little bit of time here. We'll see. Come back in three days and we'll talk then, Satan. 
We'll see what happens. And hallelujah, he rose from the grave because it was prophesied that he would, defeating death and hell and giving you and I the greatest victory over death and hell. If you are in Christ, you have that. I would encourage you today to make that decision. If you today have heard this message and it doesn't affect you, pinch yourself and see if you're alive. See if you're awake. Now, for those of you who don't know Christ, today ought to be the day that you give your heart to Christ, and I pray that you do. Would you come forward today and receive Christ? Today, up here, after service, come up. You can do it wherever you want. There's no magic in coming up here and having some of the elders pray with you, or even myself. There's no magic in that. You can do it from your seats. But will you make a stand for Christ, and will you publicly proclaim him And let today be the day of salvation. Because today is all you've got, folks. We're not being invaded by Russia today. But the Ukraine is. And there are people today that are dying over there that have not given their heart to Christ. And God is giving them the opportunity today to come to him. Do you realize that many of them, their time is up? And there are many that I know right now that are dying that aren't going to heaven. And there are many that are, have died and that have gone to heaven. But we have that decision and we live in this wonderful country of ours. Do not let a day go by until you give your heart to Christ. It's so important to do that today, not tomorrow, not when you, you know, retire from your job and you go down to Florida and play golf and you got the easy life. Don't wait until then because you don't know if you're going to make it then. Do it today. And for those of you who do know Christ, let the things that we talked about today, let it stir you up again and let it give you a renewed sense of, Lord, I am yours and I want to be yours. And Lord, I've been playing a game and I've been engaging in sinful things that God, you know that I've been doing. And Lord, today I want to offer them up to you and I ask for your forgiveness and I pray that you would come and cleanse me and heal me and take me and receive me. And you know what? He will. Even for you, Christian, who've been playing around with things you know you ought not to be playing around with, he is willing to forgive you and to cleanse you and to receive you again. That your fellowship would not be broken. Because that's what happens when we do sin and we don't confess it. Our fellowship with God is broken. It doesn't mean that we're going to go to hell if we're truly Christians. But it's important that we come to the light with him and confess those things and not play games anymore. We can't afford to play games anymore. we got to do it today. Do it today. Do not wait. Father, we just come before you and we ask, Lord, for your help. We pray, Jesus... That, Lord, for those here today and those who may be watching or those who may listen later, God, that you would open their hearts, Lord, that every single one of everyone in the hearing of this message will give their heart to you. Lord, that's your desire. That's your plan. That's your heart, God. Would you please do that work deep inside of us, Lord, and help us to not uh, be so quick to continue in our sin, Lord, and get comfortable with it, Lord. Help us to come clean with it, Lord, today. 
Whether we belong to you right now or not, Lord, let us come clean before you today and be rid of it and confess it. And you are faithful to forgive us all our unrighteousness when we confess our sin before you. And Lord, for those that have never known you, God, that today would be that day of salvation. Would you please wrap your arms around their hearts that are so racked with pain and guilt and suffering, God. You know who they are. Would you please do that, Lord Jesus, and wrap your arms around the church and Comfort us, God. We need your comfort in these crazy days that we live in. Jesus, please help us. Give us right hearts and teach us, Lord. Lord, we await your return and we can't wait to see you. And we know that you long to see us and to see the look on our face when we finally look into your face for the first time. The tears in your eyes and the tears in ours as we consider this great king. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.